one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, I have to read you guys the best line from the Los Angeles Times this weekend. Please, please. With the certainty that the incoming Democratic House majority will go after his tax returns and investigate his actions, and the likelihood of additional indictments by Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III, Trump has retreated into a cocoon of bitterness and resentment, <laughs> according to multiple administration <laughs> sources. So, so that my question is, did they all use that exact language? Did they like... Can now, you confirm that the president has retreated into his bitterness Oh, cocoon? yes, the cocoon. Yeah, oh, oh for sure. Oh, the cocoon of resentment and bitterness. You mean that one? Yes, I can confirm it's that. Actually in the a, it's actually a room in the White House. Not for retribution. Not for Because it's government, there's an acronym. It's the CORB. CORB. But really, haven't we each retreated into our own I mean, resentment and bitterness? Can you blame him after the week he's had? I mean, that sounds like a pretty nice place to me. Yeah. It's probably warm inside the cocoon of bitterness and resentment. Can you can we all from there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. You have to like sort of peel back these layers of like silk and like slime <laughs> to get in. Excuse me, Mr. President, is, are you in there? <laughs> Sir, it's time to it, wake up. Is the cocoon a skiff? Like, can, can you bring classified material into the cocoon of <laughs> and resentment and bitterness? And would he even know? Oh my God. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the cocoon of bitterness and resentment edition. I'm Shane Harris. Uh, I've, I don't know if I would want a cocoon. Recording from our cocoon. One. This is our this cocoon. Is our cocoon. Of bitterness. Yeah, it's, it's a cocoon of, of joy and reflection. Sure. And, and love flying helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> and alcohol. And alcohol. There's a Mostly lot just of alcohol. scotch on this table. <laughs> this is the cocoon of calm and happiness. There's, there's like red wine and Diet Dr. Pepper and three bottles of scotch and about <laughs> like 17 glasses. Seriously. Yeah, this is the leftover from the like lawfare election party. Uh, I think you might need some in your cocoon of resentment. <laughs> I'm going back to pout in my cocoon. He's very pouty in the cocoon this week, I bet. He's pouty in general. Well, this week especially. Mr. Pouty Pants. <laughs> 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 We're going to talk about that. I'm here in the cocoon with my friends Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, and Tamara Goffman Wittes. Hi, everybody. Hi, hey. Shane. Uh, it's been a week. It's been a week. Even by it's been a week standards, it's been a week. Uh, this week on the podcast, battle lines are drawn over Matthew Whitaker's appointment as acting attorney general. President Trump, stunned by election losses, picks fights with America's closest allies. And is North Korea deceiving the U.S. in nuclear weapons negotiations? Um, let's start with um, Whitaker. We briefly mentioned him last week on the podcast, which feels like many weeks ago. Um, but a lot has happened since the president appointed Matthew Whitaker, who had been serving as Jeff Sessions' chief of staff, to be the acting attorney general. Um, ben, why don't we start with the most recent news? And I think it's a way of sort of backing into the controversy, which is this OLC opinion that the Department of Justice has uh, now issued, uh, which essentially says it is totally fine, proper, and constitutional uh, for the president to appoint 
Matt Whitaker or anyone for that matter into a, a position, a cabinet level position who has not been confirmed by the Senate. Is that a surprising opinion? And does this settle the matter effectively? Uh, no, it is not a surprising opinion because OLC would not take the position that the actions of the attorney general are illegal. Um, well, why not? Well, so first of all, if I think if OLC believed that it could not be defended and you couldn't make an argument for the executive branch's prerogative to do that, they would give that advice orally to the attorney general. The attorney general, if he disagreed, would overrule that and then you just wouldn't have an OLC opinion. You would have an opinion of the attorney general. So you would only see the opinion of the OLC if the opinion of the OLC supported the actions. What I'm of saying the is, is, is it surprising that the OLC ruled this way? Right. I mean, so, Neil Katyal and George Conway had written in the Right. Constitution. So, so, so the, the, the first question is, is it surprising that this is what the OLC opinion says? And the answer is no. If there's going to be an OLC opinion, okay. this is what it would say. Um, the the other question, which is the second one you raise, is is it surprising that OLC takes this view? And I think it is, you know, OLCs generally will take the uh, possible position most favorable to the executive branch and its latitude, and that is this one. It's not a laughable view. It's it's I I I have not studied this issue terribly carefully, and so I don't want to. It's certainly a, an issue on which reasonable minds do differ. Whether you know, and you know, George Conway and Neil Katyal take one view, and Steve Vladek takes the other view, right? So it's not it's not like there's no decent argument on the president's side here. So I don't think it's terribly surprising that OLC would take the view conducive to what the executive branch wants to do. Uh, on the other hand, it is not decisive because ultimately whether this is legal is not up to the executive branch. It is being challenged in court. This is a question that the federal courts, assuming Matt Whitaker stays in place, will not be able to avoid deciding whether he's legally the attorney general. And that involves a huge amount of litigation risk for the department even if they ultimately prevail because if you if you say, well, there's let, let's say only a 15 percent chance that they lose – well, that's a fifteen percent chance that we don't have a legitimate attorney general, and that's a you know that's a huge consequential thing for the Justice Department because lots of things that the attorney general does could be potentially invalidated. So I think the department, you know, I, I don't know how to game out the likelihood that they prevail in this litigation because I really haven't studied the question. And by the way, there's not that much law on the question. Uh, I do think it's a very high-risk thing and the president, if he were wise and wanted to cure it, would nominate somebody who is respectable, who can get confirmed and do it very quickly. But it is notable, I guess, in an administration that has uh, gleefully flouted laws and norms quite a bit that they seem to have solicited a view from the OLC before the appointment was made. So there was some kind of normal process here, which which should be a little bit meaningful without getting to the merits of, of the opinion OLC actually gave. But the other point you made, Ben, I think is worth dwelling on for just a minute, which is that this is ultimately going to be decided in litigation. And the longer the uncertainty remains, the more decisions the Justice Department is going to take that are potentially open to review or reversal. And so, you know, 
if the White House decides to stick with this, it could ha- the longer it goes on, the bigger implications it's going to have ultimately, right? Yeah, I, I I think that is right. You know, I I agree with Ben that reasonable minds can differ on this question. That said, I, I do think this is sort of facially a pretty weak OLC opinion. Um, you know, their their case law that they're going back to cite is uh, an 1898 Supreme Court case. Um, they can't cite any case of a, of an acting attorney general not having Senate confirmation in the entire history of the Justice Department. They have one uh, one example example from 1866, four years before DOJ is created, in which someone serves without Senate confirmation um, temporarily for a six-day period. Oh, wow. So in some ways, this um, this opinion, while you know maybe it does hold together with some sort of facial legal logic, I, I really do think it underscores just the, the absolute aberration and, and how incredibly remarkable this is that the President of the United States has has diverged from the clear order of succession here in order to appoint this person. Um, you know, Ben's right. Uh, ultimately, a federal judge is going to sort of get the first crack at this. And actually, Maryland has been pretty clever here. So the state of Maryland is in litigation with the Justice Department um, uh, over the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they have named Jeff Sessions as one of uh, the respondents to their suit. What they've asked the judge to do is to uh, is essentially to enjoin Matt Whitaker from responding in Jeff Sessions' place, right? So they're saying Whitaker can't respond to this suit. You you have to say that Rod Rosenstein um, responds to the suit. So this actually is like a pretty clever way to get the issue decided or at least um, preliminarily decided, uh, you know, relatively quickly. Um, I, I think it could go either way and, and, and the department might ultimately prevail on this question. It still is going to cause lots of chaos. That said, this is another example in which the legalities are kind of beside the point. We all know what is happening here. And that is not that the president of the United States has made a decision in the interest of the public that diverging from the DOJ orders of succession is, uh, you know, is the appropriate course and designating, you know, another individual for a brief period of time in keeping with sort of the spirit of uh, of the Vacancies Reform Act and, and nominating a new attorney general, uh, you know, in, in short order. This is the president of the United States openly, flagrantly, you know, without any sort of effort to, to hide it, attempting to obstruct an investigation into his own conduct by appointing an individual who is wildly unqualified, who has serious conflicts issues if he doesn't recuse, um, you know, in this sort of like openly political role. And so in some ways, I I worry that this is another example in which, you know, sort of uh, lawyers are going to get sort of wrapped around the interesting legal technicalities and nuance. And we're going to miss like what's actually happening here, which is pretty freaking appalling. Which also seems like completely in keeping with countless other decisions and steps and actions that the administration has taken, which is to say, we know what your rules are and we really don't give a damn. Yeah, so I agree with almost everything Susan just said. And specifically, it is absolutely the case that the fact that this OLC opinion has as little to cite as it does, particularly in recent practice, 
it is not necessarily evidence that they are wrong on the law, but they do not have a lot to cite in the way of practice and precedent that supports this, and none of it is recent. And the 1898 opinion that Susan references does not involve a position like the attorney general. It involves the consul in Bangkok, Siam, back when we still called Thailand Siam. You know, and uh, it's probably once a really important job. And I, if if memory serves, it was the reason he proceeded without Senate confirmation is that the predecessor died. I think you got very ill. Or got very ill, yeah. So, you know, you're not talking about like- Whitaker's feeling real good like, right now. If Rod, if Rod Rosenstein like had been in Bangkok, you know, like, you know, there was no Rod Rosenstein in Bangkok, right? Um, so like the, the precedents they're relying on are, uh, you know, as Susan says, weak and old. And so when I say it's not lawless, I don't, I don't mean that they're right. What I mean is it's not, it's not- obviously the case that they're wrong and it's not certain that they lose. I do think this litigation and this issue has enormous value. The point on which I would differ from what Susan just said is I, I actually think that the getting wrapped up in the legalities of this right now is really healthy. Uh, not because I disagree that it could cause us to you know, lose sight of the big picture of how awful what the president is doing is. But I think it is much, much harder for Matt Whitaker to do what he was put in place in order to do, which is move against Mueller, constrain Mueller, when the legitimacy of his own appointment is being subject to active contest in federal court in a serious litigation. And I think one of the great things that has happened over the last five days or six days or however long it's been since this nightmare started is that he has had a pair of handcuffs put around him behind his back and connected to a large chain from the ceiling. And he is pretty tied up at this point. And it's very, he doesn't have a lot of maneuvering room. And this focus on the legalities and having people like John Yoo and George Conway come out and say this is appalling, you know, and focus on the legality of it is genuinely constraining to him. And I think that's great. And so I say long live long live focus on legality, at least in this context, as long as you can also zoom out and remember the big picture that Susan described. Yeah, so I, I agree with that. My concern is that what we're seeing on the front page of the New York Times is, you know, the intricacies of the Vacancies Reform Act and not, and I am seeing it diverting significant attention away from what is, I think, really this, a central question and an unanswered and largely unasked question, which is, did President Trump seek or did Matt Whitaker offer any assurances regarding his conduct in overseeing the Mueller investigation prior to Jeff Sessions being fired, prior to Whitaker being installed? That seems to me like a hugely central question that would be that would uh, be incredibly pertinent to somebody, say, investigating whether or not firing Jim Comey was part of a larger course of obstructive conduct. And so I think that's my point. It's that sort of the because po popular attention does appear to be limited in this in this arena for some reason. I do think that it's you know, it is instead of and for some reason, sort of the the technicalities do appear to be sort of overtaking the media narrative, unless it's just that, you know, my sort of media bubble is so incredibly narrow that like, actually, it's just it, what I'm seeing is is a feature of that and not actually the coverage. You know, I, I actually feel like um, Ben is correct to say that the focus on the legality is important. 
but not for the reasons that he stated. I think that I think the president appointed Matt Whitaker for a very obvious and specific reason. And Matt Whitaker has no purpose if he doesn't do that job. Okay, and so there's no reason to expect that he would feel constrained by pending litigation or public scrutiny. He's there to do a particular thing. He's either going to do it or he's going to get out of the way. He's only there for one reason. And that's precisely why I think the legality issue is an important issue, not because it might constrain Matt Whitaker while the litigation is ongoing, but because the courts now have an opportunity to weigh in in a very concrete manner on the president's effort to appoint people who are going to protect him and do his personal bidding on behalf of his personal business in the government. And it's really important that the courts have a chance to rule on that. And I sure as hell hope that they will rule in a way that constrains that form of corruption. So, I, But I don't think we should have any illusions about Matt Whitaker feeling constrained. What exactly short of a court ruling disallowing his appointment is going to constrain him? You know, I completely agree with that, that he has been installed for one purpose and there's absolutely no reason to have sort of faith or confidence in this person. That said, there are some signs that sort of the outward pressure focused on the legal questions do appear to be having effect. And that's the recusal question. Originally, they come in guns blazing. I'm overseeing the Mueller, I think was part of the original press release, including overseeing the Mueller investigation, you know, just just doing it wide open. Then they tried to sort of stall and stay quiet on is he going to recuse? Now, all of a sudden, there's kind of this tepid statement. Well, of course, he's going to abide by all appropriate procedures, including seeking guidance from ethics counsel. So now we know he's going to reach out. Now, we haven't yet gotten to the point which he says, I am going to recuse myself and abide by the ethics advice, which is the actual constraint. So it might be that he's happy to go through sort of the kabuki theater of it all, but he has no intention of actually following through. But it does seem like for whatever reason, this pressure, he is at least being a little bit responsive to it. So that suggests that the that the thing that he fears is the long-term severe damage to his reputation, which is already the public perception that he's not much of a lawyer and he's a political lackey. Public perception? <clears throat> oh, well, okay. I mean, there's only uh, one reason he has this job. Right. So, I mean, but it's interesting. I mean, if, if that's the case, and I think, <clears throat> Susan, you're right to point out that they do seem to be sort of softening or at least being rather quiet on the whole recusal thing when you would expect that they would come in and sort of put pedal to the metal on that, which which suggests that even someone like Matt Whitaker has his limits. Because, of course, if he comes out and recuses himself, the president is going to unleash holy freaking hell all over him. And we're going to be right back where we were with Jeff Sessions. No, I think if he ends up having to recuse, he'll just quit. That's it. The president will just or the appoint president someone else. Somebody else. But, but, that's, but, but, but that's a fine outcome if he ju- if he has to just quit. But here no, they'll, they'll find someone else to do this job. That's but, but, what they want. But here's the here's the point. I think that there really is a constraint going on here. So I, I think what Susan said is exactly right, and I'll take it one step further. Can you imagine with Maryland actively litigating the legitimacy of his appointment? He then moves against Mueller. And so the the headline the next day is not merely Saturday Night Massacre, Saturday Night Massacre by by illegal attorney general. That is of like a very different proposition. And I think it has 
a genuinely constraining effect, and I am less worried about his acting against Mueller today than I was five days ago. And while the DOJ has said you can't indict a sitting president, I'm pretty sure you can indict a sitting acting attorney general for obstruction of justice. And I mean, look, the faster that this all unravels for Trump, uh, the faster he's going to have to appoint a new and make a new nomination. And the faster he has to make a new nomination, the more and and get that nomination confirmed quickly, the more likely he's going to have to pick a, a sort of centrist establishment pick. And it's more likely that he's going to end up with something like a Chris Ray outcome, which really is a worst case scenario for him, in which he has yet another establishment, you know, uh, institutionalist type in office. And that person really can't be fired because he already sort of used, played his hands against uh, against Sessions. Peter Keisler for AG. <laughs> right. When you think you've escaped the deep state, they pull you back in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, while President Trump was hanging out in his uh, cocoon of bitterness and resentment that they put inside Air Force One. Because Air Force Maybe One is Air a Force big plane. One is the cocoon. Well, should, should we rename the Jungle Studio the cocoon? <clears throat> I'll have a sign oh, made, the cocoon no. of bitterness no. and resentment. No. This is the cocoon the of The Jungle no. Cocoon of Bitterness. No, we can't succumb. Uh, <laughs> so two days, I guess it was two days after this uh, stinging rebuke in the midterms, uh, the president got on board his plane uh, to fly over to Paris to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the armistice that ended the First World War. While en route, got into a fight on the phone with Theresa May, started tweeting unfounded allegations about voter fraud, tweeted nasty things about Emmanuel Macron, with whom he was in quite a tiff when he landed, uh, and then not long after actually landing in Paris, um, did not show up to the ceremony at the cemetery where other world leaders were there to to honor the fallen because he claimed the Secret Service told him it was too dangerous to fly his helicopter in the rain. What are you suggesting, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let you all suggest away. <laughs> uh, Tammy, let me start with you on this. I mean, this is – I mean, I mean, even by sort of pouty Trump standards, this was a pretty – Pretty pouty and and petulant to display, and I think uh, it was you know we've seen angry tweets and we've seen him give the cold shoulder to leaders. It does seem that there was genuinely a sort of depth of profound disappointment and sadness when he just didn't show up to the commemoration ceremony. Now he went to other events while he was there, but you know even like for the march down the Champs Elysees in the Arc de Triomphe, he didn't show up for that. He showed up late, and then Vladimir Putin showed up and went over and shook hands. I mean, there was a lot of just conspicuous theater. Of absence. Right, precisely. And one got the feeling that's exactly the message that he wanted to send. So I guess my question is you know, it's not as though this was a, you know, this wasn't a high stakes summit or anything like that. This was a a trip that was, you know, freighted with symbolism. Um, But what is the, uh, the significance in what was lost by him not participating? either A, more demonstrably in this, like literally showing up, but also just, you know, throwing tantrums and picking fights with our two closest allies while we're over here uh, trying to commemorate the end of what, you know, was once the war to end all wars. Right. I think there are um, foreign policy implications, and I think that there are domestic politics implications. And I think For President Trump, neither of those were the operative considerations in his mind at the moment. I mean, let's remember why he was going on this trip in the first place, which is that last year he attended a military parade in France, really loved it, wanted to have one here in Washington on Veterans Veterans Day. Day. 
And uh, the Pentagon basically slow rolled or, you know, hemmed and hawed. Uh, and he decided instead of that, he would go to this 100th anniversary commemoration that the French were organizing. Um, so it wasn't a given that the United States would be represented at a presidential level. This was his compensation for not being able to have a military parade here in Washington. And his desire to have a big flashy parade was itself an object of criticism both by active military who said this diverts a lot of resources and and energy that we should be spending doing our jobs and veterans who felt as though the president was wrapping himself in the flag in a way that wasn't respectful of veterans. It was more about him than it was about them. Well, if those were the concerns about a military parade in Washington, the way he chose to behave on this trip, which I mean, my goodness, this was a softball, right fat over the plate. You show up, you lay a wreath, someone holds an umbrella over you the entire time. You say a few pre-cooked words, grip and grin with a few world leaders, and you get all the benefits of global cooperation, peace over war, support for veterans, uh, respect for the troops. And it's it doesn't take any work at all. Like you don't have to give anything for it. And he couldn't even pull that off because I guess he was in a bad mood about the election outcome, or maybe he was jet lagged, or maybe he doesn't like to get his hair wet. We don't actually know. Um, what we know is that, you know, the fog may have created a little bit of a problem for the helicopter. And his aides were apparently so afraid of his temper that they weren't willing to say to him, you know, it might not look good for you to skip this one. Right. And there was some interesting reporting, too, in the in, by my colleagues Josh Tossi and Phil Rucker in The Post, which was that the president then became angry at the aides for not explaining to him why this would look like, – why the optics of this would be bad, which I found such a, a stunning insight because I'm, I have to confess when I was watching this play out, I assumed that this was deliberate on his part and he was basically trying to sort of give a middle finger to people. And it almost seems like the the significance of the moment, to your point, was lost on him and he didn't understand what a layup this was. And then he yeah. was angry at the staff for not telling him, no, of course you need to go to the ceremony yeah. to honor a war dead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I – I think he doesn't and has never appreciated the actual importance of those sort of performative ceremonial aspects of being the president, even though it should be the easiest stuff. You know, I, I think he just he doesn't feel like doing it because it's sort of it's it's all about him or just doesn't feel it. Yeah. And, and also doesn't recognize that he this isn't this is a realm in which he is not being Donald Trump, make America great again, you know, uh, Republican leader. This is where he actually is representing the American people in like a really sort of fundamental and basic way. And and, you know, by him not going to pay his respects. We all forfeited our opportunity to have the United States of America pay our respects. And, and that is actually something that, yes, it seems so incredibly petty in light of everything else that's going on, but actually is um, painful and, and problematic for a country. You know, it, it, speaking of sort of the the threat of disrespect, you know, he also unleashed the sort of tirades of tweets aimed at the French uh, on November 13th, uh, you know, the anniversary of the Bataclan uh, uh, terrorist attacks killed a hundred and 
than 30 people in Paris. I mean, an absolutely horrifying terrorist attack, you know, and, and something that is deeply felt in that country as well, that he chooses that moment, and you know, recent. to behave that way really is, you know, remarkable. You know, the one other thing that I just, I, I can't get over is this is this line in, um, in the Washington Post story that sort of recaps the five days of fury. Um, and that's that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Trump gets angry is because Macron makes this comments about how, uh, you know, nationalism is not patriotism. And this Washington Post article says the French president denounced rising nationalism around the world and called it, quote, a betrayal of patriotism with two of the world's leading nationalists, Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin, in attendance. That is such a remarkable sentence. I mean, you know, talk about sort of the boiled frog, the fact that that is just a plainly factually true sentence. And it's, it's almost sort of a throwaway line in this in this scene setting piece. I, I just think it's stunning. It's also incredibly ironic that it's the president of France who draws that <laughs> distinction. Which the president of the United States pointed out on Twitter, by the way. Um, yeah, but not. I'm not sure it's for the reasons that he pointed it out. I think why I felt so uh, humiliated, really, as an American, that it was the president of France who made that point rather than the president of the United States, is that we're the ones who, in our founding, established that distinction. We're the ones who created this you sense of, you know, of a country that means something more than, you know, it's the embodiment of the ethnicity of the people who live in it, that it's the embodiment of a set of ideas that are greater than the country itself. And the French, you know, have struggled to embrace that throughout their history and to their credit, I think, have truly embraced it. But it's not, you know, that's not a settled matter anywhere in Europe. And it's been the role of the United States globally to to be the main platform for that idea. And so the fact that our president not only didn't do that, but doesn't even get that, it really makes me sad. So I, I have a couple, I don't have a lot to add to any of this, but I do want to say two things. First of all, that one of the weird effects of, of, Trump in this environment has been to discredit the idea of nationalism, which, you know, like that the president of France could distinguish between nationalism and patriotism. You know, nationalism has an ugly side. There's a lot of countries in Europe for which nationalism was the thing that countervailed against imperialism, right? Like, you know, if you're a, an Italian nationalist, like, to me, that doesn't necessarily mean Mussolini, right? It could mean Verdi or Garibaldi, right? These are like important figures of the 19th century in establishing the idea that Italy or that even Germany was actually a thing, right? Rather than just a set of municipalities. Or if you're, you know, Romanian, the idea that there is a country there rather than just part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. These are ideas that actually have some integrity and like Trump has done an enormous amount to destroy the legitimacy of some of those enterprises, which, you know, like th there is such a thing as a liberal, legitimate nationalism. It is amazing to see the president of the United States rebuked by the president of France on the grounds that nationalism is the is the antithesis of patriotism. Secondly, there was one wonderful picture uh, that we should not ignore in this discussion. It has nothing to do with Trump except that it is a rebuke of Trump. And it is a picture 
of Macron and Angela Merkel hugging, and Macron in front of the memorial, and Macron just tweeted it with the word uni. And, you know, that's a reminder that Europe has come a long way because, yeah. you know, 19, it was unimaginable not, just decades ago. 19 million people died in that war, and it took less than, it took 20 years to renew that war in a war that, you know, 60 million people died in. And those numbers are both really rough. And, you know, the, the fundamental geostrategic tension between France and Germany has, not to mention between Germany and Russia, has an unbelievable body count associated with it. And that the leaders of those two countries could ignore the uh, machinations and goofiness of the president of the United States and have that moment shouldn't be overlooked in this. Here, and by here. the way, both of them are in their own way, despite what Macron said, they're nationalist figures. Yeah. They're, they're national leaders of, of nation states and, and, and proudly so, and that they can be that at the same time as they are also globalists and Europeanists. That's a wonderful thing, and it's and it's a developing wonderful thing, and it's it, we shouldn't ignore it in in the goofiness of what the president did. Well, and you just said something there too. I mean, the, the goofiness. I mean, the, the 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 history that's encapsulated in that photograph, and that is in the in, you know in the events that played out there those couple of days, is a history of which Donald Trump almost certainly knows absolutely nothing. I mean, he couldn't even probably you know tell you what the armistice was. I mean, I think we're all pretty confident. Or what the Marne is. <clears throat> right. I mean, he doesn't understand this. He doesn't have an appreciation for it because he hasn't studied it, and we don't have to go on down that tangent of to why, but. It seems to me that, you know, so to view what he did uh, in the way that he rebuked them, rebuffed them, didn't show up, isn't, doesn't strike me as something of a strategic calculation, right? He's just being who he is. Yeah. It's like the id that is just out there yep. throwing off all this kind of energy. But it does achieve the objective that he clearly has stated many, many times he wants to achieve, which is to, you know, shame our allies. Uh, question the need for alliances. Uh, I, I think that the the whole question of you know there's this whole solipsistic point of view that he has, which has no need at all for history. It seems because it's as if history began with him, and we see that playing out every day in his ignorance of just basic functions of government. So while it's interesting, but I guess it's not more of a, it's more of an observation than a question. It's like while it's goofy and he seems sort of unbridled and hapless. It is remarkably ruthlessly efficient and carrying out what it is that the project that he has been about for the past two years and even before that. So in, in terms of repositioning the United States relative to Europe, I think you're right. It has clear effects. If you define the project as somewhat broader than that in a way that perhaps a Steve Bannon might define it, which is about not only distancing the United States from Europe, but wedging cracks in Europe itself. I think it failed, actually. Mm -hmm. I think it was quite counterproductive. And one of the things that was striking about the image Ben described was not only the historical resonance that, that you described so well, but also uh, the contemporary resonance, that these are two uh, leaders of a Europe that is under tremendous pressure from within who are, you know, clinging tightly to one another 
in the face of that and in the face of this obstreperous diffidence, I know it's a weird phrase, but I think it's a good description on the part of the American president. And I actually thought those two days, that commemoration, that was a good story for Europe. Those were good days for the image of Europe, for the narrative of Europe, for what Europe means, reminding everybody why it actually is really quite important. And it's not just about trade relationships uh, or migrants we like versus migrants we don't like. So I thought, you know, part of what was so striking is that he didn't shame our allies. They shamed him. And it was, for him, it was humiliation on top of humiliation. Election night was bad. He got on the plane and he went to France and looked bad. And every minute from Tuesday till now, the election has looked worse and worse and worse. You know, poor guy. He needs a cocoon. He's in the cocoon. And, he's, and, you, and you're right. He, he knows that it looks bad too, yeah. I think. One other thing for podcast, if, you, if you're listening to this, you're a podcast listener, there is a truly brilliant and wonderful podcast about this war that is uh, worth going back to. Uh, Dan Carlin, the uh, uh, impresario behind the Hardcore History podcast, did a four or five part history of World War One a couple years ago. It is probably sixteen or eighteen hours long. It is stunning. And uh, if you are struggling to understand the historical resonance of what the president did and also what Macron and Merkel did, uh, really, it is really worth spending time on. It's completely riveting. Uh, speaking of people who love podcasts, Kim Jong-un. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he listens to a I lot mean, of podcasts. I listen to that podcast actually. for sure. <laughs> I would do a Kim Jong-un daily <laughs> with Kim Jong-un. Interviews with Kim, Kim Jong-un. Jong-un. <laughs> I love that I just made my fantastical assertion into a transition. <laughs> Speaking of things that I wish were true. Um, so the New York Times had a, a very interesting uh, story uh, this week on North Korea and its development of its ballistic missile program. Uh, I'm just going to first start by reading the lead. Uh, this is from a piece uh, by William Broad and David Sanger. Uh, North Korea is moving ahead with its ballistic missile program at 16 hidden bases that have been identified in new commercial satellite images. The satellite images suggest that the North has engaged in a great deception. It has offered to dismantle a major launching site, a step it began then halted, while continuing to make improvements at more than a dozen others that would bolster launches of conventional and nuclear warheads. Um, So a fairly striking lead and basically making the argument that there's this great deception and this great cheat and that the North Koreans are playing the Trump administration, which of course has trumpeted the fact that there are no missiles flying and hostages have been released. And the article essentially says, yes, well, while you're celebrating all of that, they're developing missiles at 16 more hidden bases. Um, But there's been a fair amount of pushback from the North Korean expert community on this and 38 North, which is a great blog that tracks this stuff. Uh, I'll just read what they wrote. The U.S. and North Korea have yet to conclude an agreement that inhibits deployment of missiles by Pyongyang, never mind requiring their dismantlement, nor has Washington yet offered uh, the necessary reciprocal steps that might make such a deal possible. So 
kind of a little bit of like, what the hell did you expect? And P.S. This isn't even part of the deal. And P.S. What the hell is the deal? Um, so in a sense, don't blame North Korea for doing something it never promised to stop in the first place. Um, so, so, Tammy, let's start with the apparently undisputed fact that the North Koreans are moving ahead with missile programs at these bases, which were discovered both in these commercial images, but also that the president has now said uh, we already knew about. Uh, the intelligence community is fully aware of these. I mean, is this evidence that North Korea is cheating or can we not really expect them to to halt this when we don't even have an agreement with any specificity around this issue? I don't think that the deception here is North Korea's. And I actually think that when you read into this David Sanger, William Broad story in The New York Times, they too make pretty clear that the hypocrisy they see here is not so much on the part of North Korea as on the part of the Trump administration, which has made a set of outlandish and entirely unsupported claims about progress with the North Koreans that doesn't exist, that isn't enshrined in agreements that the North Koreans deny. And the North Koreans are just doing what they've been doing. Um, so no, the intelligence community isn't surprised because the intelligence community's job is to track what they're actually doing, not what the administration claims to have achieved uh, in meetings with no agreement. So I, I think it's a little bit of a tempest in a teacup. Uh, the headline was definitely overselling the story, but I think the story itself makes clear that they're trying to ding Trump for overselling what he's accomplished um, more than they're trying to ding the North Koreans. But you know, there are some other more technical dimensions to the story that are worth focusing on. These missile sites, as far as the people who wrote this report that, that the New York Times uh, published a story about, these missile sites are mostly missiles that are not ICBMs. The primary threat that the United States is worried about is a nuclear warhead on ICBMs. And this these new satellite images don't suggest that there's ICBM sites now in these locations that used to just hold scuds and things like that. So it's not even clear that the North Koreans are advancing, even if they're doing so in a completely transparent, unsurprising manner. It's not clear that they're advancing the parts of their program that we are most, most, most concerned about. It's an odd story to me, in part because it's not as though – you know, William Broad and David Sanger don't understand those technical aspects. I mean, why – I mean, I guess now we're getting into an editorial question, but why not just write a story that says, you know, President Trump has declared the threat from nuclear uh, from nuclear war from North Korea uh, is gone and we're all safe now and don't worry, which is what he tweeted after the Singapore summit to – but here's what's really happening and his intelligence community knows it. Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit because they're not speaking in sort of in defense of the style or the editorial choices of articles like that. You know, they're not informing an expert community, right? right. They're taking the public and, and what the president of the United States has told the public is, we're good. We came up with a deal and it's all done now. And so if you pulled the average person off the street or frankly, even the average New York Times reader and said, what is going on in North Wait, Korea? are you saying <laughs> that the average New York Times reader is somehow better informed than the average person? I no, it's disgustingly elitist of me. Or even um, the president, you know. <laughs> right. So when so I think that you know whenever you're whenever you're writing an article and you're trying to say this is what's happening, right? It hasn't stopped. It's still going. In fact, it's increasing. I do think that there is something defensible about that messaging. And yes, it does a little bit dovetail with a particular narrative about the president. Um, you know, but I don't think that it is. 
it is so sort of far outside the pale. And, and I do think that somebody who read that article and read that article carefully would come away with a with a reasonable sense of what was actually going on. And I don't think the actual article was unfair. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, in, in some of the commentary from the people who wrote the paper on which the article is based is interesting. Um, Elias Grohl over at Foreign Policy actually did an interview with Joseph Bermudez, who's one of the three people on the CIS, CSIS report, where he asked me, he said, you know, it's being framed as the study is that your study is documenting a quote unquote, great deception that the North Koreans are perpetrating on the global community. Do you agree with that framing? And Bermudez said, I wouldn't phrase it that way. North Korea has since at least the 1960s pursued a policy of camouflage, concealment, and deception at all levels of its WMD and ballistic missile programs. It has done that to limit outside, and you can read that as US, South Korean, or even Chinese and Russian, understanding of their true capabilities and their limitations. It's kind of him saying like, this is not new behavior. It's what they always do, which is what people said to criticize Trump and the deal in the first place is we've been down this road. Right. But but, But that's important in this context because Trump presented Singapore as the dawn of a new era in which North Korea was going to be behave differently and we were going to denuclearize and, you know, an important first step. And to show that North Korea is behaving exactly as North Korea has already always behaved, that is, uh, concealing and lying about uh, missile development and capability, is to show that Trump uh, got duped, which we all knew as it was happening. We all expected uh, and, you know, the fact that the authors of this study, uh, you know, reaction is meet the new boss, same as the old boss. We actually weren't talking about North Korea. We were talking about the president. OK, but I think that begs the question. Both of your comments, Shane and Ben, beg the question of why this report right now and why was the New York Times interested in it? Why were the report's authors all willing to talk to the New York Times? They're all quoted in this New York Times story, by the way. And it goes to precisely that point that this is the, the North Korea that we all know and have been frustrated with for many, many years. These authors, these are North Korea experts. They are security hawks. And they are trying to make the point that the United States needs to negotiate in a very tough manner if it's going to get a meaningful deal. And so they're putting out this report to put pressure on the administration to take a tougher line with the North Koreans. And this is in the context of the most recent meeting that was meant that Pompeo was supposed to have with his North Korean counterpart being canceled at the last minute by the North Koreans in a somewhat humiliating manner. And one could presume that the Trump administration might feel some anxiety to keep that dialogue going and to be accommodating in order to have something that looks like a better relationship and a conclusion of a deal. And these folks are releasing this data and emphasizing this point that, hey, don't forget, the North Koreans are doing some really bad, really dangerous shit here. And that's all to put pressure on the administration to be tougher in the talks. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Who has objects this week? I have an object. I have one too. I do too. 
All right. Well, you three go and I'll I'll admire your object. Okay. So mine is a multimedia object. This is this really cool thing that um, the Smithsonian has put out um, sort of uh, to commemorate the armistice of um, essentially what they did was they combined different recordings um, from the moment that it took effect. Um, and so it's a one minute recording of actually the moment that World War One ended. Um, and it's a minute long and is just really remarkably powerful. So here. Wow. 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 Anyway, I thought that was incredibly cool and really a very powerful way to um, think about what that moment must have been like. Cool. Very cool. Ben? Uh, my object lesson is uh, nothing compared to that. It is dinner. Three of us at this table are going to uh, a dinner tonight uh, of the FBI Agents Association, uh, which uh, is a organization that represents and supports FBI agents. And um, I, you know, the Bureau has been uh, under a lot of stress the last couple of years for really, reason. Yeah, just... Why it's would been that a, be? That's what I've a, heard. It's been yeah. a rough time. Not familiar. It's the office gossip. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it's going to be, it's an interesting time for the organization and for people who work for that organization and for, 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 the, for the Bureau. And the Agents Association has been, you know, one of the few, it's one of the few entities that actually represents FBI employees in public. And so... Uh, it's a neat opportunity f- to be with be with the bureau and 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 its people, uh, and so uh, it's just dinner, you know. Cool. Uh, so my object is an article from the Astrophysical Journal Letters, <laughs> <laughs> and it's is this free. another UFO story? <laughs> hold on, Shane. hold on. It's titled "Could Solar Radiation Pressure Explain Amuamua's Peculiar Acceleration." To which I'm sorry, you're wondering, a Amuamua, which sounds like something that they would serve at a luau, yeah, next to the poi. Some poi and Amuamua. I'm not even no, but no. So Amuamua, and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correct, is the name. Could be Amuamua. I think it's Amuamua. I think it is. Uh, people will correct me out there. Uh, and thanks to an eagle-eyed listener that flagged this for me, you're the best. <laughs> um, is the for, I'm reading here from the abstract. Is the first object of interstellar origin observed in our solar system? So what we're talking about here is an 
an object that everyone agrees didn't come from the solar system. It's not from our asteroid belt. Um, uh, and it's, it has since exited the solar system, by the way. But what uh, caught the attention of scientists was that it seemed to be accelerating in a way that you might expect a comet coming through the solar system to accelerate, but it's not a comet. Uh, and artist renderings, if you've seen them, they, it basically looks like this giant, like I guess many football-sized shaped sort of like chunk of elongated rock. Yeah, it's like a stone cigar. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it has a kind of like, you know, rough monolith looking, uh, not to draw any comparison. <laughs> uh, I love you dancing around. It's like a cigar. It's like a cigar sort of or, something, <laughs> or something on the moon that monkeys danced around in a movie once. Uh, <laughs> but it's accelerating this very peculiar way. And the question that these two scientists, and they are scientists, they're actual scientists, uh-huh. <laughs> are raising is... Is whether or not solar radiation, so this the sun hitting this object, caused it to accelerate, which raises the question of whether it is a piece of what some people will often to refer to as a solar sail, which is this sort of theoretical propulsion system that would take advantage of solar radiation to move an object through space. So basically, it's like, is this a probe? Is this an alien probe? I like the idea Shane, that it left. It's... Like they came, they took a look, they were like, you know what? Never mind. Let's get that. Yeah, here. <laughs> There's a yeah. she's up the street. Let's keep going. <laughs> I just want to point out that nothing makes Shane giddier than this subject. So good. I'm going to take so, a picture of him so good. and tweet it. So I am going to, I'm going to link to a picture of the artist rendering of Amuamua and this article, which I have not read yet, but I'm familiar with the, like, you know, the what they raise in it, uh, the, uh, the questions. But Shane, I think, I think they sped up because they knew they were getting closer to you. Oh, they were calling me. They're like, yeah. they should have like come home, me. Shane. They should have like texted me sooner. I would have been ready. Seriously, dude, your get turn me off. will come. Beam me up. Get me off the rock. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm still here, and we're still doing podcasts. But we're at the end of in this our cocoon podcast. of happiness. <laughs> in our cocoon of happiness and fulfillment. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page. Um, it's not on the Muamua. It's on the Lawfare blog, last I checked. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave us a nice rating and review. It really helps people find the podcast. Our show is edited uh, by Jen Patia Howell. Audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. Our music this week is by President Trump with his new cover of the 1964 hit from Funny Girl, Don't Rain on My Parade. <laughs> Ooh, oh, nice. Can't you see him doing it? Yes. I bet he does a great Babs impression. <laughs> she wouldn't like that. Don't tell me how to live. Sitting <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of my good friends, uh, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. And Amuamua. And Amuamua. And Sophia Yam playing us out. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.